This is Nehemiah 5, verses 1 uh, to 13. All right. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are now of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. And this the whole assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Thanks. All right. Light passage uh, today. Yeah. Everybody ready? But buckle your chin strap. Um, yeah, I like that woo. Where, who wooed me? Yeah, woo. All right, we've, we've said this over the last few weeks, that any time that you're trying to build or accomplish anything that is bringing glory to God, anything that is in line with His... Uh-oh. Resistance. Here we go. Let's stand really still. Sounds a little hot behind the ear here. Uh, anytime you're trying to do anything that's in line with his redemptive plan, uh, his will for your relationship with him or your relationship with others, anytime that you're trying to move in that direction, you should expect resistance. And Nehemiah uh, really has been facing resistance, tackling resistance and facing problems ever since he first learned the plight of the Israel, Israelites who were returning uh, from exile and ever since he embraced God's call on his life to, to lead this effort of rebuilding Jerusalem and calling people into that work and organizing them and encouraging them, he's been facing resistance, right? He's, he is the, 
I'm calling Nehemiah the CEO now. He's the chief encouragement officer because it seems like he's constantly having to encourage and put courage back into them because there's so much resistance in the work that they're trying to do. And he's telling them, hey, this fight, we're in a fight and we're going to have to fight for this thing to be realized, right? Remember, he says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. This is going to be a fight. But Nehemiah understands something, that this fight, this rebuild of Jerusalem is worth it, right? Because if there's no wall, there's no wall for the city. If there's no wall, there's no safety. And if there's no safety, then there is no city. And if there's no city, then there is no temple. And if there's no temple, then there is no worship. And if there is no worship for God's people, They will be prone to worshiping other things because that's the story of Israel and that's our story, right? So even some of you fought to be here this morning, you're fighting for something very important to worship the Lord and have your heart. J.I. Packer said this about Nehemiah. He was rebuilding walls to reestablish worship, to reorder Jewish life, right? I got to build the walls to reestablish worship so that we can reorder our lives and reorder our loves around what matters. So in chapter 4, Nehemiah deals with some external resistance, right? We've talked a lot about Sambalot and Tobiah, and we've talked about spiritual warfare in our own lives. Sambalot and Tobiah were two people who were actively working, trying to stir up dissension and stop this work of rebuilding Jerusalem. But this week, what Caitlin just read for us highlights something that even when you're facing those external battles, the Sambalots and Tobias, right, that there's actually an enemy within the camp, right? That, that was the external enemy. There's this internal enemy within the Jewish camp, right, that also has to be addressed. So the two things we're going to do, and I hope I've prayed for us this morning that this would be a fruitful time because many of you probably aren't doing exactly what these people were doing, um, but hoping that the Lord will use this to help us see maybe where we actually are in some ways. Uh, it's just not so overt. So the two things we're going to look at this morning the first one that is identifying the enemy within, okay? And then secondly, I use the word ruthlessly because I think Nehemiah is pretty ruthless here, ruthlessly dealing with sin. So identifying the enemy within and then ruthlessly dealing with sin, all right? Let me just say this before we do that because I know some of this could kind of be tough. The fact that Jesus, uh, there is no more condemnation for us, right? We are set free from sin, and from its wages, and from its rule, and its reign. We actually can do this with joy this morning, because we know that what, what we find, he's actually trying to heal us to get us to walk in our new nature, all right? So identifying the enemy within. I think this is true for me, but seeing external resistance, things that are going on outside of me that are creating resistance, oftentimes is far easier than me seeing the enemy inside, right? We all have blind spots, um, we all don't see ourselves clearly, and probably even when I say that, if you're like me, you're like, well, you know, none of us really truly believe that, which is in and of itself an expression of the fact that we have blind spots, right? We are all self-deceived to some degree, and why that is, Scripture says this, because sin is by its very nature deceitful, right? Sin deceives us. That's why Hebrews 3.13 says, but encourage one another daily, do it every day, 
as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I want you to encourage one another, have courage, put courage into one another, right? Fight for one another, which is what Nehemiah is doing right now, that sin wouldn't harden our hearts, that we wouldn't become so deceived and become hard-hearted, right? Hard-hearted towards the Lord and what the Lord wants and what the Lord loves are hard-hearted towards our fellow man, right? That is what Nehemiah is doing here for the nobles and officials, he is fighting for those because there's a group of people in here that they say they're, we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to somebody else, right? He's fighting for those powerless people. How? By fighting the sin in other people, people within the Jewish family that was creating that very inequality, right? He's fighting the sin in the nobles and in the officials because that sin is leading to this powerless unjust, unequal place for other Jewish brothers and sisters. The situation was this. Some of the Jewish people were, and if you followed along with what Caitlin read, they were leveraging the poverty of other Jews against them, right? And the reason that these Jewish people were in poverty was because they had come from all of the villages around Jerusalem, right, to come put time in on the wall. They had answered the call to rebuild the wall, and as a result of rebuilding the wall, they weren't at home doing their work. They weren't out in their fields tending to their farms. On top of that, there was a famine going on. So you have this group of people who's saying, okay, we're not going to take interest in our own homes, our own lands. We're going to go to Jerusalem and, and put our hand to this work of the wall. Remember, the nobles and officials were the people who refused to do that earlier. And as a result, their farms, their homes had fallen into disarray, right? And so as a result, they needed money. They needed what came from working their farms. And so these nobles and officials were lending them money and grain, but they were charging them interest to the point to where they were actually having to mortgage their fields. They were losing equity and even ownership in their lands to the point of having to sell their kids into slavery, like, think about that. If we were coming in this morning and you asked, like, you probably saw somebody say, hey, how are you doing? They're like, well, it's been a rough week. I had to sell my child into slavery in order to pay for my electric bill, right? I mean, we would all go, what? That's crazy. No way. But that's what was going on here. They were charging excessive interest, which was a direct violation. Leviticus 25 was forbidden to do this and was actually seen, if you did that, it was against not only the law of God, but it was a direct way of saying, I do not fear the Lord. That's how the Jewish people would have understand that. To charge that kind of interest would have been to go against God's law and to not fear the Lord. But that's what was going on. It was the Jews taking advantage of one another and they had put their own people in a powerless, trapped situation. And what, we just have to stop and say, what would cause somebody to do that? What causes that? Maybe, again, we don't do it to the degree that we see it happening here, but what's the baseline issue that drives that sort of activity where you take that kind of advantage of somebody else, right? Well, Scripture says it really clearly. It's sin. Sin, if you're wondering what the enemy within is, it's sin. 
Sin is the enemy within. And sin has me willing to see myself as more important than other people, which is what's going on with the nobles and the officials, right? Sin has me seeing my needs as more vital than the needs of other people, right? We all have needs. We all have longings. We all have wants. But somehow sin makes me feel like my needs are actually more important than someone else's needs. My wants are more important than someone else's wants, right? My gains are more justifiable than someone else's gains. Sin moves me to that better than status and does what they're doing here, which is making an object out of the other Jewish people, right? You're just a means to my end, to my gains, Sin had them treating their family no different than the Babylonians and Persians treated them in exile. That's why it says there, what you're doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? What he's saying is, is when the Persians and the Babylonians look at what you're doing, they're going to look at this and go, how are you any different than us? Who is this Yahweh that you follow, this God that you serve? You're as bad to your people as we are to, our, to you, Right? Sin had them treating their family no different. And they were making them exiles in their own land, right? So for us, that was a mouthful. For us, how do we do this? I know that's a hard question. But I, I would love, you to just, love for us to just simplify it with this. When we are facing the world around us, right? Because every one of you we'll leave today, and we will face a world this week, right? We'll interact with tons of people from our families to our coworkers to the person that we run into at the grocery store or that person in Green Hills that I fight for a parking spot over, right? You know that person who, like, cuts you off right as you're trying to pull in, right? As we face the world around us and we see needs, do we fundamentally, this is where we can, I think, lean in, do we fundamentally operate in our lives from this, pl- from this position how can this work, this situation work to my advantage? Or do we operate from this place? How, Lord, are you calling me to be towards these people or be towards these needs? Do I operate from a place of how does every situation work to my advantage, to my gain? Because that's what these nobles and officials were doing, right? Or do I ask the question, Lord, how are you calling me to be towards these people, be towards these needs? It's a question of how can I gain or what might you be calling for me to give or to go without for the gain of another, right? And I want you to, to think about that and to examine yourself, ask the Lord, the Holy Spirit even, we're going to do it here in a second, we're going to practice this, to examine ourselves not out of a place of guilt and not out of a place of shame or a place of obligation, which by the way, Nehemiah employs all of those here. Like, Nehemiah, I know we, ain't, we, ain't, we don't shame folks here, but man, he is dropping like prophetic thunder on people here. Like, imagine if you were caught doing this, and, and <laughs> this is so silly, I called a public meeting of everybody to expose this, right? That's what happened here. Nehemiah employs that here. I don't want you to do it out of that. I want you to do it out of love because when we have our hearts examined, it actually shows us what we do love, right? It shows me my loves. 1 John 3.16 says this, this is how we know what love is. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to, we ought to, right? As those who are in Christ, this should be the rhythm of our lives now. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That wasn't what they were doing here, right? This sin of greed, that was the sin that these people were struggling with, the specific sin. The sin of greed and exploitation showed not just that they had some business practices that were busted. It showed that they had a love problem. It showed that they loved something more than they loved their fellow Jews, right? I love money more than I love people. I love my gain more than I love my brother and sister. They had a love problem. That's why Jesus in Matthew 22, when he summed up all of the law and all of the prophets, he said what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What is he saying? The law was only in place there because you had a love problem. We have a love problem. They love themselves. They love their gains more than their brothers and sisters. They didn't walk in the fear of the Lord, which is a phrase if you study the Old Testament, you'll hear a bunch. All that simply means is the Bible's way of saying we walk in something that we're devoted to or love other than the Lord. We're called to walk in the fear of the Lord, not other things. They were fearing and devoted to other things, and so therefore they weren't just breaking the law of God. They were breaking the law of God. They were breaking the heart of the law. Our kids, some of our kids are in here. They could sing the fruit of the Spirit for us. Maybe we should sing it right now, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? Against such things, there what? Is no law. No limit to that stuff. Their behaviors displayed this. They were selling other people into slavery, but they were exposing that they themselves were enslaved to a different master, to the enemy within, which was sin. So, what do you do? What do you do? Because Galatians 5 says, if you're in Christ, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So don't let yourself be burdened again by any yoke of slavery. But we do it, don't we? We can. We can let ourselves be burdened and yoked, enslaved to things that are not in our nature anymore, right? So what do you do when you discover, man, because these nobles and officials are discovering the hard way, my sin, there's an area of my life that I need to repent and I need to actually change how I'm doing this because that's what Nehemiah calls them to. What do you do when you discover the enemy within? We do what Nehemiah encouraged them to do here. Encouraged is, is a gentle word. He demanded of them. You ruthlessly deal with your sin, point two. You ruthlessly deal with it. John Owen is a Puritan writer, pastor, wrote a book called On the Mortification of Sin. It's a light read. Uh, if you want to, yeah, just double down this afternoon, get after it. Uh, he says this, do you mortify, which means to kill? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. 
That's why I remember I actually preached a sermon series a long, long time ago on the seven deadly sins, right? Pride, greed, envy, lust, gluttony, wrath, sloth. That's why they're called deadly, right? It's proving the point. We call them deadly sins because they're deadly. They destroy things, right? We have to ruthlessly deal with our sin, and we actually can ruthlessly deal with it because Christ has, right? So how does Nehemiah do it? There is some uber practical stuff in here. First thing he does is this. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it, right? I think we do this. I do this. I'll use an I statement, small group, hashtag guidelines, right? He, remember I had my trumpet last week? He is the trumpet this week. He's the trumpet for the breach and the relational wall, and he calls it out. He accuses them of what they're doing, which took a ton of courage, right? Because Nehemiah was a wealthy dude. He was currently, you know, employed as the governor over everything, so he was putting himself in a pretty vulnerable position, but he doesn't turn a blind eye. He does this. And let me tell you, y'all, I've thought more about this, not for this sermon, I've thought about this for me. He calls sin, sin. I know that sounds really simple, but we call sin struggles. We call sin tendencies, right? Sometimes we call sin the fruit of certain personality types, right? I'm just kind of that way. I'm just kind of prone to outbursts or, you know, I just, I struggle with this. Nehemiah doesn't do that. <laughs> he calls it sin. And the first step, I would just encourage you, the first step to ruthlessly dealing with your sin is calling it that. Call it what the Bible calls it. Call it sin. Because as long as I don't call it what the Bible calls it, then I don't have to deal with it. That's why we don't call it sin. Right? As long as it's one of those other things, I can kind of avoid it or I can kind of maneuver it around or make justifications for it or excuses for it. When the Bible calls it sin, then guess what? It's really clear what do I do. There's no confusion about it. I'm called to repent of sin, right? And what is repentance? Repentance is setting down one thing. That's what we see him calling them to do. Set down this way of life, and I turn and I pick up a new way of life, right? Stop doing this is what he says, right? Go give them back everything. And in fact, stop charging them interest. Be this way towards them, right? So call sin, sin. And remember this because that's what Nehemiah does. God's kindness is what leads us to repentance, is what Scripture says, right? It's a very unloving thing for you and I to not call sin, sin, because it's not in our nature anymore. I have a new, I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm not called to live that way anymore. So I call sin, sin, so that I can be healed of it and walk in a different direction. So the first thing, don't turn a blind eye, call sin, sin. Second thing is this, Nehemiah gets very angry, right? When I heard the outcry on these charges, I was very angry, and I pondered them in my mind, and I accused the nobles and officials. So I guess maybe he got angry first. Anyways, it doesn't have to happen in order, right? Call sin, sin, get angry about it. Now, you're going to have to go with me here for a second. 
But what I want you to hear is this. We should get angry at sin. It should anger us. And for some of us, even when I say that, you're, it's like anger is, is bad, right? Anger is not a good thing. And I'm not saying that all anger is a good thing. But anger in and of itself is not a bad thing. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, don't sin in your anger, right? In your anger, do not sin. It does not say that anger is sin. It says don't sin in your anger. But anger at the very core of anger is, is it's an expression that something that you love is being threatened, right? Like, I think I've used that as an example before, but like when my kids trip and fall, like when Lane's running in her Crocs, and I'm just like, oh gosh, you know, please don't trip and knock your front teeth out. But when she spills and falls, sometimes one of my first internal reactions is I'm angry because I don't want her, I'm not angry at her, but I don't want her to be hurt, right? Something I love is being threatened, right? Jesus got angry when what he loved and what was true, when injustice was happening, he got angry, right? So it's true that sometimes when we look at our anger, it shows that we love the wrong things. But in this case, in Nehemiah's case, his anger is over something that is, is being done wrong. He's angry for the right reasons. This is righteous anger. And I would tell you, you got to get angry at your sin. You got to get angry at it. Because if you aren't willing to get angry, then you will lack the energy you need to act against the sin that you see in you or in the world around you. Right? The problem with me, here's one of my problems, is, is that I get angry at all the sin I see in everyone else, and I don't get angry at the sin that I see in myself. Isn't that interesting? I get really mad at the sin I see in other people. That's so easy to see, by the way. But I don't get mad at the sin I see in me. I've got all, I, it's nuanced. I'm complicated, you know? It's so uncomplicated in their life. You see how we do that? Nehemiah, he calls sin, sin, and he gets angry about it. And he uses his anger in a productive way. He uses it to bring awareness and change to these nobles and officials. So I would just tell you, we got to get angry at it. Like, I, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to do this, but I'm thinking about at least preaching one sermon on the topic of hating sin, because the Bible calls us to hate it, to hate sin. Like, this is what Proverbs 6, or sorry, Proverbs 8, 13 says, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. And what was Nehemiah accusing them of? What? Shouldn't you walk in the fear of the Lord? So what is he saying there? He's saying, you're not walking in the fear of the Lord, which means you're not hating evil, right? This is Proverbs 6. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that rush into evil, and a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. The Lord hates that. Do we? Like most of us, we don't. I don't. I don't hate my sin. I'm like the guy who lives with a tiger. You know those people who domesticate animals that are never meant to be lived with, right? And then end up on the internet because they get killed by them, right? It's like, my sin's like that tiger that I live with, and I'm like, oh, isn't it cute, and it's big, and we kind of bounce around, and then it all of a sudden turns on me, right? 
We domesticate our sin. We don't hate it. And greed, greed might be one of the most domesticated sins in our Western world, right? I'm get, I mean, jeez. We hoard. We obsess over wealth. We get our sense of security from it. We keep more than we need. We spend more on ourselves than we ought. Like Midwestern people, we save everything, right? Midwestern people love saving stuff. We never throw anything away. And we call that being resourceful, right? We call that being resourceful. Rather, and what we do when we do that is we make noble something that really is just hiding the fact that we're really afraid and we want to control everything. You see how we do it? I make something noble. I'm being resourceful when really I'm just afraid and I just, I've got to keep everything for myself. I've got 18 winter jackets while people sleep under bridges, right? I do. I've got that many winter coats, I bet. No one ever comes in Every counseling session I've ever had, no one has ever come in and said, guess what? I need to talk about something. I've got a greed problem. No one's ever said it. And it scares me because I think we've all kind of shook hands and agreed to greed. When the Lord's saying what? The heart of greed is the same issue with lust. It's the same thing, Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. We don't often hear greed in there, right? It's like, yeah, lust, that's bad. Sexual immorality, that's bad. What about greed? Because that's what they were doing here. Something had gotten out of whack and in place of God in their life, and it was greed. Call sin, sin. Learn to hate it. Hate your sin. The Lord doesn't hate you. He loves you. But he wants us to hate what he hates, right? Hate the sin. Because it destroys things, right? If you don't deal with your sin, everybody else has to deal with it. Third thing, ooh, I gotta, gotta land a plane. Mitch, <laughs> I do have to land the plane, don't I? He gives direction and takes action. That's what he has them do right here. And he does it by having them take an oath, right? He says, okay, I'm calling you out. I'm going to call sin, sin. I'm going to get angry about it. I'm going to hate it. And then at that moment, uh, we're going to take action. I'm not not just going to let you make an apology. An apology without an adjustment is just emotion, Okay? He's saying, we got to change something here, right? He commands them, stop doing this. Not just dial it back, stop it and start doing this. You're, you're meant to be generous towards your brothers and sisters. And he makes them take a public oath, right? The last thing he does, and he makes them take it before God's representative, the priest. He says, I want you to take this promise. And this, this may sound really kind of like, oh, okay. But in those days, to take a public oath in front of a priest, right, was basically that coupled with Nehemiah at the end where he says he shakes out his robe and he calls down like this curse on them. If you don't do this, may you be emptied out like you've emptied other people out. 
basically what he was doing in the combination of those things, he was literally making them sign a contract in front of everyone is what he was doing. He said, I'm going to make you sign a contract, right? It's why it's really good when we get to that place where, man, I'm convicted of my sin, it's good to act, right? Because they, I know this about my sin. Sin's deceitful. There will come times where I won't feel like doing it again. But if I actually make a public oath, if I confess, like James says, my sin to one another and I'll be healed of that, when I bring my sin out into the light and it's shown for other people, I can actually be held accountable to the way that I'm called to live now. So he calls sin, sin. He hates it. He gets angry at it. He gives them direction and takes action and he makes them take a public oath. All four things, I would tell you, are great practical ways to ruthlessly, communally deal with our sin, all right? So, where does this leave us? Ooh, where does this leave us? I want to take a second, and then we're going to actually read a, a confession together, okay? We're going to confess, because I just, I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit has got you, at least at some point, realizing, I, I may not do it again in this exact way, but I'm complicit here. Where in my relationship am I seeing people as a means to an end? What do I need to stop doing and maybe start doing? What do I need to give back? Where has greed crept in and become normal, right? Where am I not calling sin, sin, or I'm ignoring it, right? So spend a moment, and then we're going to read this corporate confession, and then I'll, I'll close uh, I'll close this out. All right, join me uh, in this corporate confession. I have sinned, O Father, and I am pained at this thought and shamed to bring my faults into the light. Forgive me, most merciful Father, for by sinning against those that you have placed in my life for me to love and to be merciful towards, I have sinned against you. Use even the consequence of my sin to conform my heart into a more fitting likeness of the heart of Christ. Let me rise from this conviction and confess wiser in my faith, more intentional in my love for others, less likely to choose the dried husk of selfishness when next tempted towards sin. I know that my tendency is to hide my ill desires and temptations, allowing them to give birth to sinful action. Therefore, bless me with the fellowship of a true community, bonded by holy love that walks together in transparency, conviction, and generosity of spirit, wherein I might daily avail myself 
of such means of grace that I would live more accountably. Forgive me, Lord, lest I despair. Restore me, lest I forever lost. For your pardon alone is sufficient to my peace and your death to my resurrection. Embrace me again to life, to right standing with you, O God, and to the fellowship of love and compassion that is your church. I am always, every moment, in need of you. Amen. Well, I don't, I won't pretend to know maybe what the Lord convicted you of in that moment or what he may convict you of going out of here. But I just, I want to say one more thing about shame because I know Nehemiah does shame him hard here. Um, but shame only motivates for so long. Like Israel, they promised there, they say, amen. We, and they went, went away and did what was promised until they didn't do what was promised, right? And that's me too, right? But what's, what's the motivation I just want to encourage us, the power to stop living such self-interested lives. Because we're all, we all struggle with it, right? If sin is the enemy within, I just want to remind you of the gospel, which is this. In Christ, you have a new power, right, that is greater than that enemy, right? Remember Paul says in Romans 7, that famous chapter where he's like, I want to do the right thing, I don't do the right thing, I keep wanting to do the right thing, I keep doing the wrong thing. The evil that I don't want to do, I keep doing. And he just finally kind of breaks down. He says, what a wretched man am I, right? And he says this, who will deliver me from this body that is subject to death? Who will, who will deliver me from this? And he says, what? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord, right? That's where we have the power to actually stop living self-interested lives. Because guess what? Jesus, he did, he did what Nehemiah did here. He called sin, sin. He didn't turn a blind eye to it. He got angry about sin, right? He was brokenhearted over what sin had done to us, right? But instead of making us take a vow before a priest, right, and make promises to not do it again, guess what? He took one. He took the oath, and he was the priest, that's what Hebrews says. He was the high priest and the sacrifice. He was the one who was shaken out and emptied, right? For our sakes that we may never have to be. And so as a result, we have his grace and we have his mercy and his love and we are freed from slavery. And he's called us now to live as those. You've been set free from that enemy within. Yes, you can, you can be subject to it, but you're set free from it. You're free from sin's reign and rule, and you're free now to live the life of the Spirit and to fear the Lord instead of fearing other things, all right? So let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll spend a little bit more time in worship. Lord, you tell us in, in Philippians, if, if we have any encouragement from being united with you and any comfort from your love, and if any common sharing in the Spirit and any tenderness and compassion, then we should make your joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being of one in spirit and one mind. Lord, you freed us so that we don't have to do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And you've actually given us a new nature now to have humility to where we can value others above ourselves and not just look to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Thank you, Lord, that you've made this possible. 
as hard as it is sometimes, Lord, to take a hard look at my sin, uh, Lord, I know uh, that you don't show us that to shame us. You show us that because you want us to walk in our new nature and who we are in you. So, Lord, would you set us free? Would even as we worship now and in this time, would you, would you actually encourage our hearts that we can make the choice that we see Nehemiah making and even the nobles making to say, we're going to do this no more. And give us the specific places, the specific relationships, the places where, man, I am really just in this for me. I bend everything towards my advantage. And would you show us that gently, but give us the courage to walk differently. And we ask this in your name. Amen.